Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 161. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Continuing our countdown to Halloween, third annual October countdown to Halloween on Monoreal Radio. And we are here today to discuss 2017's Descendants 2. Now, if you want to hear our review of Descendants 1, you can go back and listen to last week's review. But suffice to say, I think you and I were not quite understanding the hype just yet. I was hyped to review this because based on what I had seen, I just love the aesthetic of these movies, but I can't forgive a sloppy story just because it looks cool. So I'm hoping that they get better being that they did three of them. Well, we have, well, they also did three high school musicals. We have been assured. (laughs) This isn't looking good. We have been assured that from this point moving forward, it's when the series really takes off. Is that actually the case? That is what we are here to discuss today. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. Feeling confused and out of place, Mal goes back to the Isle of the Lost following an argument with Ben. Intent on making amends and bringing her back in time to become Lady of the Court, Ben, Evie, Carlos, and Jay head to the Isle to find her. Ben is unable to convince her to come back and is eventually captured by Uma, the daughter of Ursula, and Harry, the son of Captain Hook. When Mal tries to get him back, Uma says she can have him in exchange for Fairy Godmother's wand. They plan to make a fake wand on Carlos's 3D printer, so Carlos and Jay head back to Oridon while Evie and Mal stay behind. Carlos and Jay, along with Lonnie and Dude head to the aisle with the fake wand to rescue Ben. Uma realizes that the wand is fake and a sword fight ensues. They rescue Ben and escape back to Oridon, but Mal drops her spellbook. The following day at Cotillion, when Mal is to be named Lady of the Court, everyone is shocked to see that Uma is escorted by Ben to claim the title. Jane asks Lumiere to unveil the gift from Ben to Mal, a stained glass picture, it's a stained glass window, really, of themselves. But Ben tells the fairy godmother to bring down the barrier at the Isle of the Lost as a gift to Uma instead. Realizing Ben is under a spell, Mal tells Ben that she loves him and kisses him, snapping him out of it. Mal tells Uma she's more than a villain, but she dives into the water and transforms into squid form. Mal transforms into a dragon and battles Uma. Mal defeats Uma and becomes Lady of the Court. Ben agrees to invite more children from the Isle to Oridon, and Mal hands her spellbook to Fairy Godmother so it can be displayed in the museum. So, we are back to the storyline with the wand. Before we get too far into the, the movie here, how did you feel about them going back into the wand well? That's an interesting question. I actually didn't mind it so much because 
my bigger issue was with this seemingly random 3D printer. So I was happier that that paid off. But when you really break it down, of all the artifacts that they had in that museum, and, you know, they showed quite a few of them in the first Descendants, it would have been nice to see it switched out with something else. Yeah, I will say right now that while I appreciate the fact that the first movie ends with, you didn't think that was the end of the story and it continues to here, it kind of makes sense that you would tie the wand in. I'm hoping that by the time we get to the next movie, we have found something else, something new. I don't need to see them go after the wand again. Well, here's the thing. They are kind of stuck with it because none of the villains' powers work in Oridon. So that would be the only artifact that can still function. That's true. Whether it's being used by a villain or a quote-unquote good person. Ugh. Yeah, I so I guess that's going to be the thing, right? We're we're just going to follow the wand th- through the entire series. I guess. And then I guess that is why you would ask that question in the first place because that does seem like it's kind of lazy to just keep going back to it. Right. Um so I just wanted to throw that out there because it was it was on my mind. It's been on my mind since we watched the movie and I was sort of undecided on whether I cared for it or not, and I was curious to get your perspective as well. I'm also curious to get your perspective on this fake-out intro to the movie, where they are seemingly evil again. Now, of course, this leads into a musical number, and we will discuss the music in just a little bit here. How did you feel about a fake-out in the beginning with them being evil again? It was obvious. Yeah, right. Okay. So it so it's not that it was sloppy, it's just that you knew that there was no way they went back. For sure. But I like that they started planting the seed and toying with this idea of them going back to the aisle. Um because I think the film would have been very stagnant if it all took place in Oridon. You know, that was one thing with the first one. You get this little taste of the aisle and it looks so cool and you spend probably 75% of the time in Oridon. You only get little flashes of the aisle when you go back and check in with the parents. And I feel like there was a lot more to explore there. So I'm happy that we do get to see that play out. For sure. What I tried to figure out, though, and they never really flesh it out, is this confliction with Mal. Because, obviously, in the first movie, she's the last of the four to sort of accept this idea that they don't have to be evil, accept the idea that they don't need to go through with Maleficent's plan to get the wand. But she also was the one that stood up to her mother at the coronation of Ben and said, I choose to be good, and she's the one that helped shrink her mother down to the size of a lizard. So I wish they would have played with this idea of flashbacks or amnesia a little bit more, excuse me, because they never really pay off on it. It, It's kind of like she starts feeling conflicted because we needed a movie. See, I disagree. I actually think that that was the perfect choice to have her feeling overwhelmed with all of these new pressures because yes, she has made the decision to be good and stay on the straight and narrow, but 
it wasn't just committing to being a part of this new world. She commit to Ben and that comes with a whole new set of pressures because she's not just casting aside her her old ways. She has to acclimate to the spotlight always being on her, which I guess it was going to be anyway because she still is a former villain that decided to live in this world. And, you know, we had talked about that last week is that the spotlight is always on the four of them. But it's such a polar opposite because Evie is thriving in this new world. Mm -hmm. She's found her way. She has a boyfriend, even though they didn't really, like, officially solidify her relationship with, um, with, Doug. with Doug. But I love that they brought that back again. Yes, but she's got her fashion line going and everybody clearly seems to like her in this new role. Jay is fitting in and Carlos because they're fencing now. Mm-hmm. So everybody has found a new path and their decision to become good is all justified and Mal starts to question it because there is all of this added pressure. She's not thriving in this new role yet. She's found a love, but she's still finding her footing. So I actually think that worked, and I I think it works throughout the rest of the film, giving her a new arc for this movie. I also like that it's sort of a social commentary on the obsession, and it is such a thing in the United States that we are, not we, because I don't put myself in the same category. We as a country are obsessed with a royal family from a country that we couldn't wait to get away from. (laughs) So I love that they kind of play up on that here where she is constantly being bombarded by the press to the point where fairy godmother needs to throw them out of the prep school. This is the media, that is. So I kind of like that they played with that idea a little bit too. And, And to your point, kind of adds to the stress and pressure in pushing her back to the aisle. Yes. So I lo- speaking of the aisle, I want to say now that you mentioned before the, the percentage of time that we spent on the aisle versus Aradon is flipped between the first movie and the second movie. But what I do like here, and it's something that another franchise that we have discussed at Halloween could have learned from, Halloween Town, It's the same set. They found the same set. It's the same prep school. And the Isle of the Lost looks like it is just an expanded version of the Isle of the Lost. How many times do you see a sequel, especially with DCOM, and the sets, they tell you, oh, we're back at so-and-so's house, or we're back at such-and-such school. And you could tell it's not even close to being the same the same set but here they at least carried it over they figured it out right like high school musical they did film at the same school halloween town takes place in god knows how many settings (laughs) it's so many different places but i think that's the difference with these franchises though right is that this and halloween and i'm sorry (laughs) this and high school musical were so popular i mean popular it was kind of a, a pandemonium so I think they knew the sequels were coming, whereas Halloween Town, I, I think that those were uh, game time decisions. Speaking of the set, we didn't talk about this last week. If the if Oridon Prep looks familiar at all, it's because it is from X-Men. I did not realize that. Yes. Well, that's a fun fact. It makes sense, though. They Disney-fied it, obviously, with the uh, banners and such, but 
I, I kept looking at it and I was like, gee, this looks familiar. And then I finally, finally realized. Speaking about Disney-fying, I want to talk about the fencing team. You mentioned it before. I love that they incorporated it here for two reasons. The first being that it seemed like in a lot of those early Disney fairy tales, you always had the prince, and he w- he had a sword. He was ready for a battle. So I like that they throw back to that, but I love what this does for Lonnie. Now, I am not the biggest fan of Mulan. I've said that on this show before. I don't need Donny Osmond making a man out of me. But what I appreciate is that they gave Lonnie a bigger purpose, number one, but she carries, it, it's in her lineage, right? Like she carries over the tradition from her mother. And there was a lot of opportunity for this to seem forced, but the way they did it was just so flawless. It works so perfectly. I'm so glad you bring this up. I completely agree, especially because fencing was not only a Disney thing, but I feel like that's also such a prep school trope. Yeah. Whenever you're in any kind of school where you're dorming there, it just seems like fencing is always the thing, right? I, I completely agree. I love what it does for Lonnie's character, especially because there's a big time payoff, which we'll talk about. Uh, but it's twofold because this is also how they can hold their own against Uma at the end. Yeah, it, it like everything they did here, like there were there were things we discussed in the first film that they kind of planted and they didn't circle back around to, and they do that here as well. But this was an opportunity that they had to strike this, you know, perfectly because it would have been such a miss. It would have been such a loss if they didn't pay off on it. If there's one thing they paid off on and it worked, it was going with this 110%. Absolutely. I also love what they do with Carlos and Jane. Yes. It is so relatable at that age when you have... Somebody that you're crushing on in high school, you know, 16 years old, 15 years old, 17, you know, whatever the case may be, and you don't know how to talk to them, and it's awkward. What I love about this is that it's perfect for the fan base, because you know that there were there were kids that saw this as adolescents that are now preteen or they're tweens in high school. They're going through this exact same thing. So I think that the fact that this movie in a way grows up along with the fans i think was one of the smartest decisions that they could make i agree especially because they sort of planted in the first one you know obviously after jane gives the wand back and mal is actually the one who sort of gives her a pass they do have that we're all in this together-esque musical number at the end of the first one. And Jane does dance with Carlos and Jay. Um, You know, and I I think it was just a way of visually bridging the gap a little bit more between, okay, they're going to be good now. Um, But it still did sort of plant the seed. Yeah, I mean, I think... Halloween Town did this very well, too. Not that the sequels were any good. They progressively got worse and worse. But the one thing I gave that franchise credit for is being able to grow up with the fan base because 
the sequels came out so long. I mean, when you're talking three years for a sequel, that's a long time to wait. So the fact that they were able to do that in that franchise and grow up with the fan base, they do the same thing here. I just love when Disney does this. I love that they know who they're playing to, but it's not outside the reach of, you know, your 8 to 12-year-olds that are going to watch a Disney Channel movie because they want to hear the songs and they want to see the dance numbers. Right, and they'll relate. An 8-year-old is going to relate to Carlos and Jane way more than they would relate to somebody like Evie. Uh, yeah, correct. And and uh, Dizzy, too, you know, when they yes. introduce her. So th- I think that they did a lot of things well here. Something else that I thought they really did, it, it's just an observation. I love that Mal, who's now blonde, she still has the purple tips in her hair. Very subtle. It's very subtle. And it's not, I mean, in my observation... I don't think they left it in there just to give her a touch of purple because she's Mal. I feel like she let her hair grow out and she let it grow longer than we've ever seen it because she's still hanging on just a little bit. And it's symbolic, but I really like that they did that here. I agree. That's what I mean by subtle. The color is not subtle. It is still very much bright purple at the tip of her hair, but it is supposed to give you the visual cue that there is still wickedness within her and she's fighting to keep it at bay. But I also love the stark contrast with the blonde, you know, it's not like she had dark hair with purple at the end of it. She really, it shows that she's really trying to fit in and really trying to live up to this lady of the court reputation that she has to uphold, you know, and she is trying to, princess herself a little bit which she very much gets called on by Uma yeah and we'll talk about Uma in a few moments here before we get to the aisle yeah let's talk about the date in this movie okay I'll I'll let you go ahead and I'll let you lay this one down why didn't they do this the first time I mean, yes, they did a picnic the first time, but this is out over the water. You still have just as beautiful a setting. Nobody has to go swimming. It's totally uncalled for. This would have been better the first time around. Uh, With that said, I think this is a really clever scene, especially the way that the issues that Ben and Mal are having are about to come to a head. I love that Mal is... You know, they're both being pulled in a million different directions. They're trying to make time for each other. So, you know, they have this stolen moment where they can finally get together, but Mal is still pressed for time. So she uses magic to create the picnic. Right. Which is all of the stuff from Beauty and the Beast. I thought that was so clever. I love how, I mean, obviously, because Ben is Belle and the Beast's son, they keep you know, using Beauty and the Beast touches like Be Our Guest in the first one and and now the picnic. But I just thought that was such a a nice little hat tip there. Um, But I love how Mal gets exposed. And I feel like this fight between the two of them is just so relatable because Ben's not even upset so much that she used magic on him. He's just upset that she lied. And 
wasn't saying, hey, you know, I feel all all this pressure to be your girlfriend. How can we work through this? And she's just trying her best to keep up with everything. Yeah, I like that he exposes her. I like the point that he's trying to make. But this is where the movie does very much feel like a made-for-TV film. It's not much of a conflict. She kind of just runs off. And from there, more or less just says, I can't take it anymore. I don't belong here. And she goes back. Yeah, it kind of does escalate quickly. But when you think of everything that she's been through, they do put her in quite a pressure cooker in the first five or ten minutes of this film. It's, you know, with the the press having their attention on her, she's seeing herself on TV. She's got a million fittings. Jane keeps questioning her about all these cotillion choices that she has to make. And she's just trying to fit in, as I said, with all of these added pressures. So when you put it, when you think of it on those terms, it doesn't seem like so much of a knee jerk reaction, but I feel like her and Ben needed to get into it. Like I would have believed it more if she were actually mad at Ben. Because they weren't really mad at each other. she They, they were just stressed. And she felt bad that she let him down. Um, I think it could have blown up a little bit more when he busted her trying to use a memory spell on him. Yes. That's where it stayed pretty tame. And that would have been a point where it could have escalated more. Um, as far as, though, her doing a complete 180 and deciding, okay, I can't take this. I have to go back. What really bothers me at this point, you know, she doesn't forget her mother, the gecko. Yeah. She takes her. Yes, we're going to say the same thing. But you brought her back to the homeland. And then what? Yes, this was my problem. Such a missed opportunity for all of the parents to to get involved now that they're back on home turf. Yeah. What was the point? What is the payoff? The whole time I'm thinking, well, we're going to see Kristen Chenoweth again. She's going to come back, and now we're going to see the other three villains as well, and they're going to try to convince the kids to come back, and now there's going to be another instance where perhaps they are using Mal as a pawn so that they get what they want. No. Just just no to everything. It, it It's like... There was so much potential here for a payoff that just never happens. And instead, they give Mal a loft. Yeah. Where did she get this place? With what money is she paying for? I mean, all right, fine. I'll give you a pass on that they're villains and they're just kind of like running the streets when when they were on the aisle. But that was something that I said was kind of ambiguous in the first one. They didn't seem like they were friends until they got to Oridon. I would have believed this more if the four of them were working together to survive and this was their place. This seems at first like it's Mal's when Ben comes to apologize. And later, during the duet with Evie, it seems like it was their joint apartment, if I'm not mistaken. like There yeah. was Evie's portrait on that wall, correct? Yeah, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like an e- like an evil lair, but you did get the feeling that the three of them were living there together. Regardless, it was a cool set. I think all of the sets that we got here were cool. 
including this tavern. Oh, my God. So we get introduced to Uma, the daughter of Ursula. Can I just say, I love her as a pirate. I do, too. There's just, like, something about this little hat tip to Pirates of the Caribbean, but she's not the daughter of Barbosa. At the same time, you see her in squid form, but she's not a squid the whole time. I love the fact that I love the fact that they braided her hair. It kind of had that tentacle look to it. It yes. had that Captain Jack look to it. Just the, the overall aesthetic of Uma works. I love that they went in this direction. I do too. I mean, we do get the pirate ship towards the end, but even even if we never got it, I feel like that's more more to do with Harry Hook than anything else. I love that they paired them together and even making the son of Gaston piratey. I think that all worked so well because you would expect to see Gaston's son hanging out in a tavern as well. Uh, so what I really appreciate, too, is that Uma works there. They're not all hanging out in the tavern. We're not quite that old yet. Uh, it's the perfect way to get Ursula in there without having to do a whole character design and figure out how are we going to get Ursula out of the water. Yeah. Because for a decom, I think that just would have been too much. I mean, what they do at the end of this film is pretty incredible. Um but I think that just would have presented too much of a, cha- a challenge. So I agree with you. I, I love Uma's aesthetic. I love the blue color palette and how that blends with all similar to Pirates of the Caribbean. The second one where the, the ship is like taking over the pirates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they made it more glam rock than like a weathered decaying look just the whole thing is so cool yeah china ann mclean plays uma i love everything she does for this character i love her swagger i love her attitude and i love her gumption like for a shot for all intents and purposes for a child actress who's playing the villain in the movie there are times where she completely carries the film she does. She has such a maturity, and I'm going to go on and on about this in all of her musical numbers. She is beyond her years. When you put her in a scene with Mal, these two have such an unbelievable chemistry. I, I really feel like both of them together, bouncing off of each other like that, were well beyond their years. For sure. And I loved that we also got Thomas Doherty as Harry Hook here because it's similarly I think he's I think that he's a good sidekick but he's a scene stealer and I love that aesthetic he's got this sort of glam rock thing going on and like when you think about how To Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, they were the original rock stars. And a lot of what they did, they modeled after Keith Richards. And he obviously modeled his performance after Keith Richards. I felt the way they did the makeup and the costume here with Thomas Doherty, I kind of felt like that carried over, paid homage to the same thing. This, The point is, this feels like it all belongs in the same universe. I agree. I think that Harry Hook presented a challenge with the aesthetic because Captain Hook is one of those 
flamboyant panache villains that I love so much. We have not, believe it or not, covered Peter Pan on Monoreal Radio just yet. It's coming, we promise. But, um, yeah. Captain Jasper Hook is is one of my favorites. Uh, so you have to still uphold that character. But I think that Pirates of the Caribbean has rewritten how everyone thinks about pirates, like you said, as, as these rock stars. So I think that they did a good job of blending the two. Um, could I have done with a little less of the guy liner? Sure. But you needed to have a little something that says rock star, especially to match Uma without directly ripping off of Johnny. So I think that they did a good job considering that you had to pay, you, you had to do the hat tip without ripping it off. Yeah. The only thing that I'm going to disagree with you on is Gil. And he's played by Dylan Plairfay who I had to, uh, or sorry, uh, Playfair, Dylan Playfair, who I had to look up because I'm like, he looks familiar from somewhere. He's the coach in Mighty Ducks. He's the coach of the Ducks yes. in Game Changers. Yes, he sure is. I wish that he would have been a patron. I don't know for me personally that Gaston's son works as a pirate, but I can see him not having Gaston's tavern to hang out in anymore. Not that he was the purveyor of the tavern, but seeing as Gaston is no longer with us, I would have liked to have seen his son use that tavern more as a hangout with maybe some other kids from that Beauty and the Beast universe. But I'm glad we have him nonetheless. Well, see, that's the interesting thing, right? Is that the Beauty and the Beast universe is so prominent in Auradon, it's kind of odd that we didn't get him until now. Uh, and you would think that he would be the one that's leading the charge of, why didn't I get to go? Um, because you would think that he'd be the most prime for redemption. Right. It actually, it begs the question, why wasn't he in the, f the first circle? Which I guess, to Bell and the Beast... You really don't want to acknowledge your villain, who is supposed to be dead, by the way, but in Descendants 2, he is not. They do reference Gaston, and they uh, Gil tells, uh, tells Ben to say hi to his mother from Gaston, which is funny. It um, is funny, but it's confusing at the same time. It is. But yeah, that that's something I didn't realize until we started talking through this, is why... Gil wouldn't have been one of the first to go. It would have been such a much bigger conflict in the first one. Yeah. Um, to, to circle back to what you said, though, as far as not necessarily buying him as a pirate, I don't know. I mean, his wardrobe reads pirate to me. I don't know that he is fully pirate, though. To me, I like the surfer dude quality that they gave him. To me, he reads more of like a deckhand. So maybe he works on the dock, not necessarily on the boat. Um, I buy it. I think the three of them work here for what it is, though. But now that I'm thinking of the big picture, like, yeah, Gil should have been leading the charge. But he's just unfortunately, he's not nearly as interesting as Uma. It would have also been interesting to play with your idea that he feels entitled or feels like he's the one that needs redemption if perhaps 
he being overlooked for a carryover to Auradon, for an invitation to join Auradon Prep, if he was so upset and put off by the fact that he was not chosen, if that is why he would have aided Harry and Uma, it may have made for a more interesting character. Because otherwise, let's just call it what he is. He's a dopey sidekick. Right. What do you think about that as the plot point, though? That that's why they're seeking revenge, so to speak, in this movie. That Because they didn't get picked. See, here's the thing. I It's not clearly defined. To me, it's not clearly defined. I couldn't... I. As I sit here now, having watched this movie a couple of times this week, I couldn't figure out whether it was pure jealousy, whether it was spitefulness, or whether they just want to take over the world. If it's just they're going to try to carry out Maleficent's plan to me, and perhaps perhaps they overtly say it. If I'm being honest with you, I don't really remember. So that should tell you everything you need to know about the motivation, about how I feel about it. If it had been defined a little bit better for me, I may have bought into it. But this kind of just seems like, well, evil because, yes. Right. And that's where, and again, to be fair, they may not, they may not have known at that point that they were doing a sequel. But I feel like if those parameters were more clearly defined in the first one, it would make more sense now. Um, because we did talk about that last week. We had asked each other, you know, our thoughts on the villains that they did choose, but you're not thinking about all of the other villains' kids. The only thing that we did say was that in the first one, we would have liked to have seen more cameos and more of these characters populating the aisle while they were there. Now I really wish we had seen that because it would give this a lot more levity as to why they're angry they weren't chosen. I think we needed to get a little bit more of that from Ben, and that should have come out when he got captured. And the thing with Ben, right before he gets captured, really what brings them to the aisle is because he goes to Jay, Carlos, and Evie for help, and then Lonnie joins in with them eventually. But he says, I went beast. No, No, you didn't. You just kind of got a little bit mean and you were just disappointed. My thing is, like so many other things, there's something to build on there. Like, remember, he is, I mean, he's human. Ben is human because Belle is human. The Beast technically is human. He just became a beast because the Enchantress or the old beggar woman, depending on which film you're talking about, She puts him under this spell. Now, I wish that somewhere, perhaps genetically, it would have carried over. Like, perhaps, I'm not going to say it's like the Incredible Hulk, but perhaps there is an idea here with going beast. And you could play with it a little bit, because Ben doesn't go beast, he just goes, and it's it's just dumb. I don't know. I mean, listen, ultimately, this is a movie for kids, but... It's 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 a little too childish for me. I'm glad you brought up Incredible Hulk because there is no world where I need to see him fighting his inner beast like Bruce Banner is trying to conceal the big guy. No, we've seen it before. Um, and I think it would 
take away from the character because what I do like about Ben is that he is so earnest. I had said it last week is that he never once believed that Mal was actually going to use that wand. And even when she was in the moment holding it, he still trusted her. And it was never like, come on, put the wand down. You don't want to do this. It was just, you know, I know the real you. Let's build this together. And he sort of does the same thing again. It's such an interesting juxtaposition. I love that the relationship develops with him, Evie, Jay, and Carlos, because now he's got to work even more closely with them. Yeah. They always had a friendship just by virtue of, you know, they were the chosen ones, but now he's really got to rely on them and he's got to blend in with them to survive in the aisle. Uh, but that is juxtaposed against his natural character coming out when Uma's got him because his immediate reaction is, I want to know about you. I want to know what's bothering you. How can we make this better? How can we work together? I don't love that they tried to cover everything up with a throwaway line of, I'm sorry, I meant to come back for more kids. I just got too busy because that's where these parameters should have been clearly defined. But as far as Ben goes, this is where I'm glad he's not wrestling with his inner beast because it's such a good quality about him that he always sees the best in people. And I think what's interesting is that they never take the route of that biting him. He never trusts someone where it completely backfires because he doesn't really trust Uma. He is just really trying to do what's best for everyone. Well, actually, that applies to this moment on the pirate ship. It is going to bite him, but not by fault of him mistrusting he gets another spell but that that's his problem it's not that he trusts too easily he just he's just a, a bullseye for all of these spells yeah and speaking of which because mal puts him under a spell in the first movie i want to talk about mal for a minute here i don't know if this is just me so i'm really interested in getting your perspective on this i kind of think she's better as a villain. I like her more as a villain than I do in this role of trying to be a lady of the court and trying to marry a king. There is just something... It's not that she's not convincing in this princess or queen role. And I think they certainly aesthetically tried to make her look the part when she had blonde hair, very straight blonde hair. But... When she goes back to the purple hair, and we're going to talk about Dizzy in a minute too, there's just something there with her as a villain that I find so much more believable. I would agree with that. Uh, I certainly think part of that is because Dove Cameron had some fun with this character. Um, I think you don't necessarily notice it as much in the first movie because she is a villain who is conflicted and her walls are broken down here. There other than the purple hair, there really is no trace of the villain left until she gets back to the aisle. But at the same time, once she's there, she doesn't really do anything bad. She doesn't really revert to her old ways. She's putting 
graffiti, if you will, on her wall. She's not even vandalizing someone else's property. You know what I mean? So it's like you put her back in the purple hair, you put her back in the getup, but that's the point, right? Is that she is still good. She does belong in Oradon. She's just got to figure out how to be both. Right. And this is where it would have been a million times more effective if their parents would have been coming after them. Because once she's back on the aisle, again, like I said, she's not reverting to her old ways. So what is the motivation to stay there? You broke Ben's heart. You gave him back the ring. But for what? It's not like you're even trying to capitalize on any of this. For somebody who is so conflicted, it would have only made sense for her to bring her mother back and then for Maleficent to play on her own daughter. Yes. It would have made a lot of sense. It w- it, yeah, it definitely would have given her more of a reason to want to stay there. Instead, like I said, she rejects Ben. Later rejects Evie and says, no, I'm going to stay. And then saves Ben and goes back to Oridon with them because she had to get in the limo before Uma got her. Right. We talked about the purple hair coming back. It's only natural now that we talk about Dizzy Tremaine. Curl up and die. Played by Anna Cathcart. She is the daughter of Drizella, the granddaughter of Lady Tremaine. I love the actress. I love the character. She's such the perfect addition to this cast. And she was a fan of the original film. I believe this was her first movie. It shows that she loved the first film as much as she did because she absolutely killed it in this movie. I agree. She's so cute. Love the aesthetic. Love the relationship that she has with Evie. The only thing... For me, it begs the question, who hooked up with Drizella? I I don't know. I mean, look, Gaston is back. You know what I'm saying? Like, some things are better left unsaid. <laughs> I'm kind of happy living in that world. How did you feel about living in the world where dude can speak? Let me ask you about this. It's so So, just to set up what happens here. There was a gummy that was made, I believe by Evie, actually, that was to be eaten by Carlos. Carlos is supposed to... This this gummy gives you the ability to speak your mind and speak from the heart because Carlos can't speak to Jane. And through a comedy of errors, they drop the gummy and dude, the dog, eats it and starts to speak, voiced by Bobby Moynihan. Did we need to hear the dog speak? Again, this was one of those things that I thought was going to be really stupid, but ends up paying off. I agree. I I loved it, actually. Yeah, I mean, I wish that he was more of like a Binks in Hocus Pocus, like more sarcastic and had more punchy one-liners. But regardless, it all worked. I really thought it was going to be stupid and senseless and have nothing to do with the story, but this paid off just as much as the 3D printer. What I liked about this is Carlos, as we've mentioned a half a dozen times at this point, is conflicted when it comes to talking to Jay. Now, here's the thing. He's going to Jay for advice, but he's Jay. 
So nothing that Jay is going to tell him is going to work because everything that Jay does works for Jay. It's realistically not going to work for Carlos. But because Carlos has developed this relationship with Dude that has carried over from the first film, before Dude can speak, I mean, it is man's best friend, right? The dog is man's best friend. You could see where the two of them really do have such a bond. I love that it's him that is able to speak to Carlos and kind of get him on board because as crazy as it sounds because it's coming from a dog, I'm not sure that anybody else could have whipped him into shape to get him to talk to Jane. Right, because we know he's got this bond with Jay, not only from the first one, not only because they come from the same place, not only because we see him ask for girl advice earlier. Who is his other influence? Ben? He's not going to go to a I almost say prince, but he is the king, even though that makes no sense. He's not going to go to the king for girl advice. So, you know, he has said clearly the dogs are man's best friend and he truly believes that dude is his best friend. So this is the perfect way to get through to him. And again, in this scene, it seems really silly that the dog is still talking and you think it's going to end there that the most dude talking is going to do is push Carlos towards the girl. It pays off again in the showdown with Uma. For sure. Now, before we get to the showdown with Uma, I want to, I want to talk about something. Another thing that I thought was kind of being set up and they don't really pay off on it. Before we go back to the aisle, you mentioned before the 3D printer and how eventually there's a payoff with the 3D printer. Right, because if it's possible, Chad has gotten even more annoying in this film. Yes. And he keeps breaking into Jay and Carlos's dorm to use the printer. Yes. And I really thought that was going nowhere. Thank God it did. Well, not really. Well, not with Chad, but I'm saying the printer. I actually thought that was kind of brilliant to well, do the duplicate wand. Here's the thing. It is. But here's my point. Why with Chad? It makes no sense that he keeps breaking in. He has to turn over the fake key that he made in the 3D printer to get into the room. Nobody, nobody ever really gets upset with him mm -hmm. that he's in there other than oh, get out and give us your other key. It makes no sense that he keeps getting in. But the biggest miss of all... For me, there is a scene, I believe it's when Evie has him trying on some sort of outfit for Cotillion. She did, like, all the Cotillion dresses. Now, he has this moment where he says out loud, so if Ben were to not come back, who would be next in line for the throne and Carlos and Jay even say you know that's in very poor taste I love that line so do I I wish that would have been something they played with I wish that perhaps if he's gonna go out there and put it out there into the world that it's on his mind he's already a dislikable character wouldn't it have made a more interesting storyline if he would have been selling them out to Uma the entire time. It absolutely would have, especially because that would track with the first film. You know, we said that him and Audrey didn't really care about each other, but they looked good together and they knew they could benefit from each other. 
And they were so quick to capitalize on that as soon as Ben broke up with her. Yeah. So it kind of gives, let's call it what it is, no offense to the actor, it makes a useless character more useless because it seems like you're going to keep building him up into something and he never actually becomes that thing that you are seemingly building him towards. Right. And they do have the throwaway line that Audrey's so brokenhearted from the breakup. She's like at the spa or whatever. Right. With the fairies from Sleeping Beauty. It would have been a lot more effective if she was in this film, too, and her and Chad were conspiring or working with Uma. It would have been so much better. All right, now I want to get to the scene where we are finally going to rescue Ben, okay? They arrive with the fake wand. I agree with what you said before. Like the idea, like the plan makes sense. I just wish... There was so much potential for such a cool set build, for such a cool ship, because we've said the sets in this movie, and the same, I think, can be said for the first film, I think the sets are really good. And I still think that this pirate ship set is cool, but CGI. Like, they just CGI things that you don't need to CGI in a set build. And, like, there was so much opportunity for it to aesthetically look pleasing, for it to be really functional, and they just seem to miss the mark a little bit because they rely on CGI because, you know, Disney. I would agree, especially considering that this is a musical. It would have been such a great multi-tiered stage build. Um you know, obviously we're going to talk about the musical numbers later, but just for the purpose of comparing this, what they did with the tavern was so brilliant because they used every single inch of that set for story and for choreography. And how do you miss that same mark with a pirate? It's a pirate ship. Come on. You, you can't screw it up. And yet you did. And this is many, many years after at least the original Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. So we know that Disney can build a functioning pirate ship that looks really cool. Not to mention, how short is that plank? How many times do they push Ben to the end of it? Because there, there's like two feet of wiggle room. I mean, look, they CGI'd the smoke bombs. They couldn't even use a practical effect for the smoke bomb. It looks dumb. I think it looks awful, actually. But but the scene is great. I love the choreography with the swords. I love the battle between all of them. Like, and that's where, you know, you talked earlier about it's going to pay off everything that you see with Lonnie and the fencing team. And you do get a payoff here. Like they tied that up really nicely. And the, the kids did an incredible job with the stunt work. Right. Because the first time around when we were watching this, I was thinking to myself, how do these kids all of a sudden know how to sword fight? And then it wasn't until the second time I was like, Oh, that's right. It's the fencing. I do feel like, it dragged just a little bit because some of the sword work was a little clunky. Well, maybe clunky is not a fair word, but because of what we're used to seeing in Pirates of the Caribbean, it's so fast and it's so choreographed. There's not as much back and forth. Um, 
so I think parts of it feel a little slow and the setups feel a little slow for, for some of their movements. I think maybe that's where if you had had a couple more smoke bombs go off and stylized it with the color, it would have been a lot more interesting. I kind of got the feeling that they were sort of trying with the musical number that preceded it, that they were trying to like dance fight. See, and I'm surprised they didn't go for both and meld the fight choreography into the song. And I guess maybe that's why I feel like it drags too, because they did treat it as two separate entities. You have the song and then you have the sword fight. If this was sword fight dancing, yeah, I'm all for it. I mean, Boo Boo Stewart went for it. I think they said that he ripped a ton of his costumes because he was like going for it too hard with the dancing and with the sword fighting. You can just tell he's an athletic guy. So I I can definitely see that. So we get out of the scene. Ben is rescued. And what I like here is that there is still a conflict yes. with him and Mal because he basically throws it in Mal's face that Uma's plan was basically the same thing that Mal had done at one point in time because he's still trying to be... I mean, let's call it what it is. He's trying to be political, right? He's trying to be King Ben that's going to save the kids of the Isle of the Lost, and she doesn't understand why, and he throws it in her face. I I like the fact that it's not just like, okay, kiss and make up, we're happy. Let's go to Cotillion now. Yeah, I think it's such a smart arc for him, too, Uh to show him stepping into the role as king that as much as he loves Mal, he's not just going to put his girlfriend before everything. And this is where it starts to separate, you know, between the first and the second film where it was like with Audrey, he just catered to his girlfriend here. He cares for Mal, but he's not going to put that above all else and not in a power hungry way. It's just that he was trying to figure out at the beginning of this film how to balance his insane schedule with having a relationship. Here is where he's starting to realize it's not about the time management. There's a different kind of balance that he's trying to figure out. So, yeah, I, I think it, and, and you just felt the weight of that in the limo ride. It was really awkward. So the, the whole scene is well done. The other thing that they did here that I like is that we see Mal drop her spell book. But we don't get that scene of like Uma comes out and picks it up and has that hmm look on Maniacal her face. Love. Yeah, you didn't need it. You just know no. when you see Ben again at Cotillion, you just know that he's under a spell. You don't need to show it because we as the movie going audience, or in this case movie viewing audience, because it was straight to television, we know it. We don't need to see it. And they kind of just kept the story going without us having to see that scene. I actually love that they did that because you sort of forget about it. So it does sort of come as a sucker punch later on, especially because this next scene that we get is probably one of my favorites in the whole film is that now we've got the core four back together. And when you think about it, they really haven't had a lot of time all together as the four of them in this film. Whereas, you know, in the first one, they're making the cookies with the spell and they're plotting how they're going to steal this wand. You haven't let them breathe and bond as much in this film. And obviously that's part of their growth because they are bonding with other characters. Um, 
but I love this moment where they're trying to get to the core of what's been bothering Mal and Carlos calls her and Evie out of you guys are always breaking away to have your girl talk. We're supposed to be a family. Let's all talk through this. I think it's just such a sweet moment. Um, you know, that he really stands up for them as a family and even more so at the end of that conversation when Jay offers to take her back, like no questions asked, if this isn't for you, I'll take you back myself tomorrow. I love the two of them being like brothers to her. I don't know how to start girl talk. Yeah, the whole <laughs> the whole scene is so heartfelt. It's so far through two movies. I think it's the best scene you have with the four of them together. I agree. And this is where I found myself going, oh, this is why people love this so much. This is the hype. It's because I think the four of them have so much chemistry off screen. It's just channeled through here. It's it's really great. Yeah, it's palpable for sure. The final scene is the cotillion scene where you do get that sucker punch of Mal shows up. She's ready to become the lady of the court. Here comes Ben with Uma. It shocks everybody, including Belle and the Beast. Um, and then she kisses him, which we were bound to see eventually. That happens here. He snaps out of the spell, and then the two of them kind of fight each other a little bit. And it's very quick. Um, how did you feel about this scene? Like, I don't want to say it was anticlimactic, because it ended the way the movie should have ended. But I wish that we would have gotten a little bit more from Mal and Uma, just because I think both actresses are so wildly talented that they could have carried a better conflict. I agree, because I had said it before, in that first scene together, their back and forth is amazing, the way that they're calling each other out. And that's just the arm wrestling scene. It gets even better when they're on the ship and she's like, all right, give me my boyfriend back. So here, you know, it's the third time they've come together you really should have had like a palpable anger and exchange of words. And instead we got the CGI Maleficent dragon versus Uma in the water. Uma in the water with the tentacles looked much better than Mal as the dragon. Yeah. Uh, they use some force perspective, which I really appreciate. I think that was all great. Uh, Story and character wise, I like that Mal was able to harness her mother's power and show us what she can do. Um, however, I am surprised that there wasn't like that big like collective gasp from the crowd of, oh, my goodness, there's magic here. What now? Is she really evil? She went back to the aisle. Now she's here. Can we trust her because she's ready to be? Uh, a lady of the court and now she just got dumped by Ben I think that they could have played with that a little bit more her being angry because he showed up with Uma um, that also really bothered me jumping back a little bit I realized that they're trying to build to this reveal that he shows up with Uma on his arm but Mal should not have walked down the stairs by herself like I know they wanted that pretty woman moment of her descending the staircase but I just felt like that was really weird. It seems out of character. And and because she always goes right to Evie, who I get it is supposed to be like her sister, but like then have Evie walk her in. 
yeah, there was something there that was amiss. And to your point, this is the third conflict. And of the three conflicts that we've seen with them, it ranks third out of three. So when you build up to this moment, this is supposed to be the big one. And it's it's just not. As far as Mal and Ben go, uh, I really love the stained glass window. Yes. I think that that was so smart. I think think that you almost forget about it a little bit too much. I think they should have brought it in one more time because you see him looking at the color swatches for her eyes. Um, I think it gets buried because he's on the phone with Lumiere about it. I think Jane needed to get like in his face about it one more time because I totally forgot this was a thing that's happening. So it is a good reveal that he was planning this all along and that he never was going to align with Uma. Although there was a part of me that thought based on their conversation of, you know, when he was tied up on the ship, when he was like, I want to get to know you. I want to know what's bothering you. I, there was a moment where I was like, wait a second, is he putting the kingdom before all? Is he really going to try and merge these worlds? Is he actually, going to choose her over Mal. I really thought that this was all going to go south and that was setting up the third one that he chose a different girl. Yeah, it would have been, I I kind of knew the whole time he's under a spell, but it would have to to use a phrase we've used no less than half a dozen times in this conversation would have made for a really interesting story. The only thing that I don't love about it I like the stained glass window for their relationship. What I don't love is that Mal had such a moment of self-discovery in the first one. Now she's looking at what Ben did for her and she's like, you saw the real me. That is the real me. And then she changes her dress and then she's like, okay, I can do both. She didn't figure it out for herself that she wanted to be both. Yeah, and for such a strong-willed character, that was a miss. All right, you want to talk about the music here? I think it's time. Yes, because I feel like we skipped so many moments, but there are so many more musical numbers in this one. Um, Blanket statement, the music, choreography, cinematography, not that it was bad in the first one, it was all great, but it is so elevated across the board in this film. I was like blown away. These, These could be all separate music videos and just stand on their own. Yeah, and I think, to your point, it seems like we skipped a lot of scenes and a lot of moments, but it's just because so many scenes and moments are a product of these musical numbers. Right, They did push the story through this music a lot more so than in the first one. And and better so, I thought. With As far as the character relationships to each other, like with Mal and Evie and... Uh, Mal and Uma, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. In the first one, it was like, be our guest when they do that before parents weekend. That does Mm -hmm. nothing for the story. It's just a cute moment. Here, they all served a bigger purpose. Right. All we got in be our guest was Belle and the Beast cheesing it up, which we get again in the first musical number (laughs) here, Ways to be Wicked. I love the line of, I lost my invitation from Mal. It was such a nice touch. It sounds really top 40. I will say I got the feeling that this was one of those we're going for a radio hit. But 
I like it more than Rotten to the Core, just because I didn't think Rotten to the Core, for me, it didn't work with that EDM beat. Um, I thought this was much better. I thought the lip syncing was better, to your point. I thought the music, and similarly, the cinematography throughout, just as you said, much better in this. And I, I really liked this as an introduction to this movie. I agree. Even though this was a fake out, it is such a strong opening. Uh, yeah, top 40 though it is. Uh, it's a catchy song. The lyrics are clever. I love how they're doing, um, it, you know, it feels like a music video in a school and regardless of whether or not that's what they were going for, I think it all works because of the way it was shot. It almost reminds me of like a baby one more time, how they're in front of the lockers. So you get that feel of like a high school music video. Yeah. What's My Name is the next song on the soundtrack. I love the sort of Polynesian chant that you get here. I love the dance that kind of goes along with it. I think the cast is insane. Here's the only issue I have with this number because I love it for Uma, but she's got such a good singing voice that the auto-tune is distracting. It, it seems to me that they were trying to go... I'll, I have no nice way of saying it. They're trying to go for a crappy radio hit. Okay, we, you and I had an entire conversation over dinner last night as I sound like an old man who screams at clouds about how I don't understand why anybody listens to new music or why they like new music today. Oh, they should have heard you last night. This is kind of one of those things. Like, you have somebody that has a good singing voice that can carry a tune, but a modern audience of... of of kids that are listening to music and really getting into music. Like, I don't think they understand that like auto tune is not a style. Auto tune is meant to make up for the fact that you can't sing worth your life. So when you do have somebody that can sing very well, I'm sorry, auto tune is not stylistic, but they don't know the difference between one and the next. And I don't understand why they did it here. They did it a few times. Um, Cause I'm going to bring it up a couple of more times. I think as we discuss the musical numbers, it's, it's just so distracting and it's not necessary at all. No, and it's not fair to like dumb her down. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for it. Um, other than that, though, uh, this whole number is incredible. I love how, I mean, I love the set to begin with. We've talked about it earlier, uh, but I think it was just so perfectly utilized with the choreography and they they followed through on everything they had her dancing on the bar dancing on the tables doing a little bit with the swords i love the hand choreography uh and then they got all the pirates swinging from the chandeliers they just knocked it out of the park with this number i i really love everything about it yeah i loved chilling like a villain too it's just like fun all around but again you have Sophia Carson, who can sing very well, and they, like, take the auto-tune and they crank it to 11. That's a Spinal Tap joke, kids. <laughs> they crank it to 11. It sounds horrific, but this this is my point. Like, this is what people think music is. They think that this is normal, that you hear auto-tune. It should not be normal. 
So to your point, you're insulting good talent when you crank up auto-tune because this will play on Top 40 Radio, and that's my big problem with it. You're not trying to showcase talent. You're trying to sell a single on iTunes. No, and at that rate, it's like, why did you cast her? Yeah. I, I've never in my life heard of a director tell an actress to be less. It, it's unheard of. Visually, though, this is another great one. I love that we get to see more of the aisle, and I love how it almost feels like the Wizard of Oz, like a really weird and trippy Wizard of Oz that Dorothy is going through this world with her her three guys. I don't know if this is fact, but because Kenny Ortega is such a brilliant director of musicals I would be willing to bet that this was a little hat tip to the Wizard of Oz the way that they're walking through um and I love that we're trying to see Ben blend in here and as we get more and more through the song his movements become more and more funky and more in line with Jay and Carlos he also this is Kenny Ortega hat tips himself in space between it's a really nice moment between Mal and Evie but Kenny loves those top-of-the-stairs shots. We saw it a couple of times in High School Musical, specifically in the first and the third, and he had to give himself another one here. I think it works, though, especially yeah. because, you know, you bothered to give Mal this loft, so it certainly works when they're out on, you know, that tier. Um but yeah, once they walk into the loft and they're like holding hands and then they separate just to come back together, it's all very stylized. But um, yeah, I love the song. I love the duet between them. Um, it reminds me of Wicked in all the right ways, not in a rip-offy way. Um, it just, it begs the question, where is Kristen Chenoweth in all of this? Is she still breathing in that box? I know Mal punched the holes, but where is she? We'll never know. It's going down. Or as I call it, epic rap battles of history. <laughs> totally. It's fun. I think it's super cool choreography with the swords. It's epic rap, rap battles of history, right? I mean, that's what this is. I don't think that they intentionally ripped it off, but again, it all works. I just wish we would have seen more of the sword fighting in the song. Um, yeah, it's it's catchy. Uh, the set is cool. Like we said, could have been better if you utilized the ship a little bit more, did a little bit more with the cargo nets and ropes and, you know, multi-layered. A longer plank would have made a lot more sense. Um but otherwise, I mean, I really like the number. And you mentioned this, the sword choreography. They also do a clock, which I absolutely love as a little hat tip to Peter Pan. You and Me is the conclusion of the film. It's the last musical number. Um, it's a nice conclusion. It's a nice moan for the cast. It's a little womp-bomb-a-loo-mop for me, a little too much so. I don't know that it necessarily has a place in this universe, especially because we've kind of been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I think what is the win here is the choreography with the water. When they stomp the water, they kick the water, they splash the water. 
it's a cool visual and you could see that the cast really enjoyed themselves with it. And I'm sure all had 102 fevers the next day. <laughs> um, I agree. Visually stunning. It's incredible. I love the choreography. I love how they work the water into it. Uh, I love the chemistry that the main cast and even the secondary cast has. I think it shines through. They clearly had a lot of fun. And this this cast really does clearly have a lot of love for each other. I just question, does it work? I mean, yes, you're going to get that Ramalama last number like they've done in High School Musical, like they did in the first Descendants. But I'm like, why the boat? Did we really need the water? I mean, okay, the boat works because you had Uma get in the water. So you weren't going to have Cotillion in the middle of a palace where you can't get to water easily. I'll give it that. But as far as it coming up on the boat, did we really need it? For reasons other than it looks cool? I don't know. Final thoughts. I'm going to go first this week. I get it now. I get the hype behind this. Um, I think by far, when you compare this to the first film, it is it is by far the superior movie. I think the characters are, with the exception of Chad, are very <laughs> well developed. I think the story works. I love the growth that we see, especially in Evie. I think she works really as the good guy, and they play up on that a lot more in this movie. I love the hat tips. You mentioned the clock. I love that you have Haiti Souflaki on a, you know, it's a poster on the wall, and, and that'll hopefully pay off because we're getting Hades in in the next movie. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see where um, this is the phenomenon that people make it out to be, and I have to tell you, I'm very excited now to watch the third movie. I would agree. The more that I've seen of this world, the more it is completely sucking me in and the more that I'm enjoying it. Um, I liked the first one more so than you did, but I was sort of harsh on it last week because the more we talked about it, the more we found things that were wrong with it. And I can't necessarily forgive a bad story just because it looks cool or just because I like the characters. But now that we've come out on the other side of this one and the character arcs are stronger and we have moved the story forward, I'm starting to look past all of the errors and the what could have been and appreciate it more and more for what it is. I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, I loved the music. I loved all the dance numbers. Um, Loved the villains, which is kind of an odd thing to say because they are all villains. But I, I really liked Uma. Um, and I hope that her I'll be back at the end pays off in the next one. We want to know what you have to say about Descendants 2. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. 
I am so thankful for her suggestion as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. I will be damned if Disney Genie renders me obsolete. I can plan a better vacation for you. So get in touch with me through any of our social media channels at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zalezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. I guess we're going to find out on October 19th, right? Yes. News News of the week is brought to you. I'm free. Disney Genie is not. There you go. Fair enough. That's that's very true. News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for art prints, stationery, greeting cards, apparel, home decor, and more, Kelly has what you're looking for. I guarantee it. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. You can see everything that she's got to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So, a little bit of sad news. It, it is sad, but it's it's an accomplishment and it's a celebration. Really, it is a celebration of life. Ruthie Thompson... Disney legend, 40 years in the company, the last person that was living who had worked on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs passed away this past week, 111 years old. What an incredible life. I mean, to live that long on its own is such an accomplishment and you hope that she was in good physical and mental health right up into the end and got to enjoy her time. But I mean, what an insane career, 40 years with the company. And I believe that she is the person to hold the record. uh, The the longest person to have worked with Walt and Roy. Um, The Walt Disney archives wrote such a beautiful article on her legacy. I'm going to share it on our Facebook page because there's just so much that she did do for the company. And, And, you know, we've reviewed 161 films on the show can you imagine like to work on so many of them you know i'll put it to you this way 161 films i mean it's it's almost a year almost a year for every film i mean yeah she was 111 but but when you talk about 50 years or 50 films over the course of 161 versus 111 i mean it's just it's it's an insane number to live to be 111 years old. It truly is an accomplishment. Is this an accomplishment? Did okay. Did you see the trailer for Home Sweet Home Alone? Did you watch it? I actually did. I was warned and I watched it anyway. I, okay, you. we love Home Alone. You especially love Home Alone. I don't think you even understand how much I love Home Alone. And and I love the sequel just as much. I mean, Tim Curry, need I say more? Um, usually, 
when these trailers drop, I'm working and I am like scrambling to watch them five minutes before we hit record and catch up. This one, I couldn't stop myself today. Um, they modernized it. I'll give it that. They split the family up over two flights. Um, I think you have to because in the age of cell phones, how does this even work, you know? It, it, but is this movie necessary? I know they acquired the franchise when they got Fox. Did, did, but do you really have to remake Home Alone? What I'm very interested to see is how they play the angle of the robbers. Um, because it's a married couple. So I think that they're going to give more of a backstory and more of a reason as to why they need to break into the home. Um, I don't need a reason why. They're the wet bandits. That's that's it. That's the reason why. Yeah. I've, I've said it before and I will say it again. There are times when I think it's really interesting when you delve into the mindset of a villain. Not Michael Myers. You don't need to do it to Michael Myers. You don't need to do it to Freddy Krueger. And you don't need to do it to Marvin Harry or whoever (laughs) it is that they've named these characters. I don't care what their psyche is. They're robbers. Just let them be robbers. But, I mean, look, it's... Other than the fact that it's a married couple and it's the family split over two flights... It's the same exact movie. I mean, Home Alone 2 is more or less the same thing as Home Alone 1. It's just that Kevin got on the wrong plane. But this is, ju- I mean, it's it's the same exact movie. So you're, you're remaking it almost to a T with a couple of subtle changes. Oh, look, we're British now, and it's a married couple. I don't understand why. To me, Home Alone is priceless, and it's timeless. Everybody watches Home Alone. Everybody likes Home Alone. Everybody of a certain age likes Home Alone. There's something Everybody there. quotes Home Alone. There's something there for everybody. I gotta be honest, not excited about this. I'm not excited, but I'm not prepared to hate all over it either. I'm I'm actually rooting for it. Like I want you to knock my socks off. I hope it's great. I truly do. I look. I don't go into any movie looking to hate it. If you're going into a movie looking to hate a movie, then you're watching it for the wrong reasons. But it's uh, there's just something about this that isn't sitting well. It's hard when you take a beloved movie. I, I kind of wish if they were going to do the reboot, if, if you're going to bother, I kind of wish they would have done this with like Buzz's kid or something. Like Buzz as a parent now has to pay retribution for all the horrible things he did to Kevin. Well, I think Buzz is the cop that knocks on the door in this movie. I think that was what we saw in the trailer was that Buzz is a police officer now. Woof. Um, a movie that I am very much excited about, at least in theory, is we are getting a film about Walt Disney creating Disneyland. Yes. We don't know much about it. We don't even have a title yet. We don't know who's playing Walt Disney, though I hope it's Tom Hanks. I was actually going to say Thomas Ian Nicholas. Believe it or not, 
he looks more the part than Tom Hanks does. And Tom Hanks, I said it when we reviewed Saving Mr. Banks, he does not nail the accent. I actually think Thomas Ian Nicholas, and I know people are sitting there going, who? He was in American Pie. Rosenbagger. <laughs> and they're probably going, what's American Pie? <laughs> um, <laughs> but just look him up. He's amazing. He, he was in a film, uh, Walt Before Mickey, which was not released under the Disney banner, but he played Walt Disney, and in my opinion, he kills it. And he looks the part. Um, what we do know is that David... Kid in King Arthur's Court. That's how the Disney audience would know him. Sorry, go on. Rookie of the Year. Yeah. To me, Rookie of the Year before yeah. Kid in King Arthur's Court. David Gordon Green is set to direct this movie. Fresh off of directing Halloween Kills. <laughs> which I think is super, super interesting. Um, He's got range, clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, look, I don't know much about him, admittedly. It's just funny to me that you you grab the director that just did Halloween Kills and said, you know what it would be really interesting, what I think would be great, if you directed a film about Walt Disney creating Disneyland What's John Carpenter up to nowadays <laughs> while we're at it? No, and it's absurd because they they nixed Guillermo del Toro's Haunted Mansion. I don't know that that's ever going to see the light of day because everybody thought that it was going to be too scary. They want to keep Haunted Mansion PG-13. Even PG-13 is pushing it a little bit. They want to keep it light. They want to keep it spooky and comical and whimsical, not scary. So... Not that I think he's going to turn this into a horror film, but it's just such an interesting choice of director. And God, I would have loved to see this in the hands of Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. Evan Spiliotopolo. I got that right. Spiliotopolo. I was practicing that in my head. He's going to write it. He wrote Jungle Book 2, Pooh's Heffalump movie, which we actually have reviewed on this show. Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasure, and a film that we are going to review in just a few short weeks, the Beauty and the Beast live-action reboot. Oh, no. So, I mean, look, nothing against him, but in in that list of films, I can't tell you that I've given any of them, or that I will give any of them, glowing reviews. So this seems like a very interesting team that they're going to put together to tell the story of Walt Disney creating the happiest place on Earth. But it's going right to Disney+. Plus. They're not releasing it in theaters. And I'll be honest with you, this one I sort of get. Because as much as I would love to see this on a big screen, I feel like unless you're doing the biography of Walt Disney, I'm not sure that outside of the Disney Park fandom, right. that there's enough of an audience that wants to see Walt Disney sit in the back of a station wagon and drive through <laughs> what will eventually be the Jungle Cruise. We've seen it a hundred times. I want to see it. I want to know who's playing Harper Goff, especially. I think that's going to be really, and I know exactly who I want for it, so let's... It's it's the uh, the actor who was in Rockstar and then he was in Enchanted, uh, the British one. He was in Enchanted. He was the right hand man to the prince in Enchanted. I want him to play Harper Goff, but that's besides the point. 
it's a shame you can't get Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think that would have been amazing. Unfortunately, he's got other he's got other problems right now. He's not, he's not going to come back for this one. But it would have been interesting. I'm interested to see who the cast is. I'm excited for it. But anyway, this, my long way to get to this is. I think putting this to Disney Plus makes sense. A lot of times I sit there and go, I don't know, I think you got to put it in the movies. This one I think works going right to Disney Plus. I agree. And I I kind of want that experience of it, like how we watch the Imagineering story, how we watch Behind the Attraction. Like, you know, we'll get a couple of snacks and light a core memory candle, pick a Disney scent out. I, I want like the whole experience. Yeah. Is it true that you ordered more core memory candles? Well, we'll discuss this after. <laughs> All right. But my question to she you. She was discontinuing Pumpkin King. I had to. It's the best one. This is not an ad. I just love core memory candles as much as I love the lady who makes them. If you're not familiar with them, check out thecastlerun.com. I know a lot of people do the Disney scented candles and they'll obviously name them things that aren't copywritten, but... Lisa does them the best. She nails every single scent. Uh, and she, I, I love that they are subtle and you can really use them in any kind of home decor without screaming Disney. It's just the scent. Uh, the vessels are really, really pretty. And she makes such a nice description which each, with each of the candle and what it means to her. Um, so definitely check them out if you're into Disney scented candles. Everything else is garbage. In comparison? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, she was actually on and she joined us for our review of the Lion King live action reboot. And spoiler, she's coming back. But we want to know what you have to say about any of this Disney news, whether it be Home Alone or perhaps this Disneyland film that they are putting together with this very, very interesting cast of uh, creators here. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Of course, we are on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio for links to everything, all the social media, and everywhere that you can find the podcast. It is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.